Hi, I'm Molly Moran, and this is the Table Wine Podcast. With me is my co-host, Andy Stoiber. Hello, Molly. Hi, Andy. How are you? I am doing so well today. A beautiful fall day in Madison, Wisconsin. And I have some wine mystery whites that are next to me. It's the middle of the day and I haven't eaten. And (laughs) I'm excited for how this wine will make me feel. It's going to make you feel great. I've eaten and it's going to make me feel great too. This is our very first podcast, which is pretty exciting. We've been talking about it for years and it's finally happening. So I think that we should introduce ourselves to the people, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I am Molly Moran. And I opened a wine shop in Madison in 2015 after years of working in restaurants and wine retail. I had fallen in love with wine in my early 20s and knew that I wanted to own my own business, but I wasn't quite sure what form that would take. And much to my parents' chagrin, I know they'll be listening, (laughs) they wanted me to stay with the safe corporate job, but I uh, left to open my own place because I knew that I needed to do it before I got old and scared. (laughs) So I did it. And one of the things about table wine that I think sets us apart is that we love to break down barriers and make wine accessible to people without it being frivolous. I try to thread that needle very carefully. So I didn't set out to take down the establishment per se, but that is kind of where I've (laughs) taken my shop over these last few years. And this podcast is a natural outgrowth of my interest in wine education, connecting with people, talking about wine. And a dear friendship that blossomed when a young man applied for a job. And I'll let him take over the story from here. And love blossoms. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, that young man is me, apparently. <laughs> it's true. In 2017, I joined Molly at Table Wine and we got to spend our afternoons stocking shelves and discussing politics and romance and all the great things, but (laughs) always centered around wine. And Molly really taught me everything I know today about wine. But a little bit about why I wanted to learn about wine is that, putting it simply, growing up in Wisconsin, it's a beer-centric culture. My parents, though, didn't drink, but everyone else you see drinking is always chugging beer. Sunday, football games, all that. And I was like, I'm not into beer. I came to University of Wisconsin as an undergraduate. I remember trying a beer like that first week I was here on campus and be like, this is gross. I had never had beer before that. I don't think I'd ever had beer before that. So it validated. Like I knew I didn't want beer in my life. And then having it, I was like, this is gross. Being with people in college where it's gross. And so I like committed, like I'm going to be a wine person. I want to love and know about wine. No one in my family was interested in wine, but I saw it on TV. I think Frasier might've been a big influence (laughs) over me. And this is something I was thinking will be threaded throughout our time together. It's like the cultural significance of wine. Because I think it says a lot that I was like, I'm going to like wine and not beer. And so, yeah, I joined Bali at Table Wine after I left a job in corporate tech world and I wanted to pursue something that would make me happy and wine fascinated me. And I knew if I wanted to actually learn about it, I would need to be either spending a ton of money on it or working with it where I'd have access to tasting things all the time. And that's what happened. And now I'm a graduate student studying education and help people learn. And so wine to me is fascinating because how... It's a subject that is so deep and most people enjoy it though, right at the surface level. And I think that's totally okay, but it can go as deep as you want it to go. And I think part of this podcast will be discussing those nuances of like when you should just hang out on the surface and when it's fun to go a little bit deeper and see how that like improves or changes your experience with wine. I think that's great. 
when we were conceptualizing our podcast, we knew that we wanted it to be about wine. That's what brought us together. And so uh, we looked around and kind of saw what kinds of wine podcasts there are out there. And there are a lot of really great ones. I, I don't mean to say that, you know, we're forging a whole new path or we're doing something that no one else has ever thought of or anything like that. But the majority of wine podcasts seem to fall into two buckets, and it's a bucket for the novice drinker. And they're very uh, fundamental, a kind of rudimentary information about like a specific grape or maybe a different region or something like that. And they're really, they are really good. I teach wine classes at the shop and now I'm teaching them virtually. And I kind of already have a format where I cover that kind of information for, you know, so I, I wanted something else. I wanted a different kind of creative outlet. And then the other bucket of wine podcasts are these incredibly detailed, super thorough nerd podcast, quite honestly. And I say that with the utmost love for them. But they're for people who are training to be psalms. They're for, you know, wine professionals in the biz. And that's not who we are either. Like we're not, we're not those people either, right? So Andy and I decided we're we're doing our own bucket and we want to be somewhere in between. So the thrust of this podcast is that we're going to tackle a different theme each season. We're going to do a handful of episodes around each theme. And they're not going to be kind of your traditional wine wine education topics, I guess, is what I'll say. And definitely not what you've seen in other podcasts. So as Molly was describing what this podcast is about, I couldn't help but think about uh, book clubs that would come into Table Wine and, you know, a group of women, as it was, gathering with their books. They tell me it's a book club and I would, you know, couldn't help but overhear virtually nothing discussed about the book or maybe the first five minutes about the book and they had a great time and maybe that's what this podcast will be is yes there's wine that is the 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 reason for being is the wine but i think things might get a little off topic and we'll be talking about all <laughs> sorts of things but we are a wine club first and foremost and that identity stays i love it this season is our first and what are we talking about andy we are talking about wine movies. I, <laughs> I wanted it. to say geopolitics, and I was like, maybe not. <laughs> Time for that joke yet. But wine movies is our topic for the season. And we are starting off with a maybe a modern classic because, you know, there aren't that many wine movies. And the one we're starting with from 2008 mm -hmm. stars Alan Rickman and is called bottle shock but molly i had another thought which yes. was appropriate i think to a first episode as i have a moment where i can say that is when i fell in love with wine and i knew it was something special that i care about and wanted to pursue do you have one of those moments that you can point to and say that's when i knew wine was something i wanted to invest myself in absolutely i think everybody in our industry does in some form or another and if you don't and you're in the industry maybe you should check out your priorities <laughs> maybe you don't shade. love this, maybe you don't love wine it is it's some shade but i mean it truly if you don't have that moment that says like why do i want to be in like why do i love this right we're going to do sideways in a later podcast but there is that like the monologue about why virginia madsen's character loves wine right and like i think that if you don't feel some of that in some way then you, you know yeah, you, I don't know. It, it's just not it's we're not the same. That's all. 
So my moment actually led me to be a guest on a podcast called Wine Wars, which I love. They're not recording anymore, but I highly recommend it for everybody out there. I did a post on social media about my this very question, like my aha moment wine. And it happened to be a wine that one of the hosts of that podcast also loves. And he had one bottle left in his cellar. And so they invited me on to be their guest. And then we opened that bottle together. And it was a really geeky, fun moment. So my answer is that in the early 2000s, I was working at a big wine store in Madison. And I liked wine enough, but I don't think I was taking it very seriously. And I had just dropped out of law school and I was definitely for sure messing about. Like, I didn't have a plan. I did not know what I was doing. I was, you know, one day I was going to go to grad school and the next day I was going to open a restaurant and the next day I was going to be a personal chef. You know, I didn't know what I was doing. And there was this wine from this woman, Eugenia Keegan. She had an eponymous winery that has since um, closed, but her wines were just, they were absolutely stunning. And her Pinot Noir knocked my freaking socks off. You know, it was, I I remember selling it to someone. This is almost 20 years ago at this point. I remember standing at that, in that store saying, oh, you know, it's kind of like I was like out in the garden, digging in the dirt, picking wild raspberries. And this person was like, well, I guess I need to know what that tastes like, you know? And and I, that has stuck with me. And I've had as many bottles of Keegan wine as I possibly can. Anytime it was around, I had it. And her wines weren't the wines that got the biggest scores. They weren't the wines that were, you know, kind of like, I don't know, the, the ones that people made a fuss about. And I just adored them. I, I remember the way it smells. I, I can think of its color right here, right now. Like I can just like see it in my brain. And I wanted to do that for as long as I could. I wanted to talk about wine. So that's mine. I know that Andy's moment isn't the moment that he shared with me, but I do want to say that Andy's passion for wine is why I needed to have him in my life because he wrote me this cover letter and he waxed on about drinking wine. And I was like, oh my God, nobody ever fesses up in their cover letter that like, I want to work at a wine store because I want to drink wine. Like I like wine and I want to drink it. Everybody tries to act all, I don't know, stodgy and stuff. And Andy's letter was just like, yeah, man, I like Muscadet and I want to drink more of it. And I thought either you were going to be like just so pretentious that I was <laughs> going to be like, who's that guy? Or you had to be, I really honestly, it was just like, I need to know this person. And then you walked in and I will give you all a visual if you don't know Andy. He's over six feet tall. Yes, six foot. I'll take over though. Okay. <laughs> and he has this beautiful mane of red hair. And I was like, yeah. Like, I was just like, yep, that guy. I want to know that guy. I want that guy in my life. And so here we are. Andy. Oh, thank you. Let's backtrack, though. Yeah. What was your moment where you wanted to be a wine person? Okay. I'm going to cut to the chase and maybe back, like, recontextualize after. It was a bottle of Riesling, Dr. Lucen's Blue Slate, that you can find everywhere, I think, if you look, you know, a little a little hard. Not the most expensive bottle of wine. I'm guessing it's about $18 or something. Maybe less, maybe less, maybe more. But I remember tasting it and falling in love. It was like dancing across my tongue. I had never had anything like it. I was 21 years old and I, at that time, was committed to drinking wine, but that really just meant drinking Malbec and Merlot <laughs> sold in cartons at the corner grocery, like the corner convenience store. And so it was like a commitment come to life because I was dining at a fancy restaurant, Sardine in Madison, 
And my friend's parents are taking us out for dinner and they're from the East Coast and they're cultured people that drink. And they were like, ooh, have a, what would you like before we sit down? And I looked at the wine list on a chalkboard. I just said the Riesling, which I think was brilliant because Riesling, this Riesling was a little sweet. There's some sweetness to it and it's so approachable. And so I think if it had been like some sort of really earthy Chardonnay. I think it's easy to be turned off by wine where you go, what is this? Although I, oh, maybe actually the real time I fell in love with wine was my first communion. That goes far back in my Catholic upbringing. But I definitely started loving wine when I was in church. So thank you, Catholicism, for that. But Can everybody was, tell that we've had some wine to drink? This Riesling blew my socks off. But also I think the environment. I love that space. Still one of my favorite spaces in Madison. And I think Wine is often complementary to and brought to life in environments, who you're with, the people you're sharing it with, and the space you're in. And if you do a block, some, you drink something blind versus like, it's just so much going on every time you drink is based on so many other factors. So if you hate something once, you might return to it and love it later. I do think that's true. And sometimes you just hate a wine. And it's that's okay. true, true. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes you're just yeah. never going to be sold on it. It's okay. Yeah. I love it. Every episode, we want to bring you a bit of knowledge that is fun and exciting and will wet your palate. So this is the aperitif. On October 22nd, 2021, it will be Champagne Day. If you're not someone who celebrates wine holidays, that's okay. I'm not really one for them either. I don't usually need an excuse to drink wine, and I definitely don't need an excuse to drink champagne. Champagne is the perfect way to start a meal. So for this first aperitif, it felt like the absolute perfect pair, I guess. Champagne Day was created by a blogger named Chris Agenfuss as a truly as a marketing tool, right, to get more people excited about drinking champagne. So it's an excuse to open something fancy and sparkling, use a hashtag, post on Instagram, that kind of stuff and have fun. I think that people don't drink enough champagne, quite honestly. It's not the most budget-friendly wine. When people come in to the shop and say that they want champagne, but they'd like it to be under $10, I have to explain that champagne comes from a specific region in France where wine costs a lot of money to make and therefore costs a lot of money to buy. So I say let's use October 22nd as a day to celebrate, to drink champagne, pop the cork, and I don't know, be fun, be frivolous a little bit. I prefer the very mineral-driven, blanc-de-blanc style of champagne if I'm not drinking rosé champagne. But I do believe that there's a champagne for pretty much every palate. And if you haven't found one that you like, let's talk because there's, there's something out there for just about everybody. So happy Champagne Day, everybody. Now it's time for us to pop the cork. Each week we are going to drink wines that somewhat relate to our movie. So we'll get to this later when we talk about Bottle Shock in more detail. But the th the gist of the movie is that it's a blind tasting with an American and a French wine, and it's all about Chardonnay. So what we have before us are two Chardonnays, one from Sonoma County in California, specifically the Russian River Valley, one from the Cote de Bonne, in Burgundy, France. We, neither one of us knows which wine is which. My partner and spouse 
Connor did this for us. He 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 made them blind. So I le- legitimately don't know. But what I do know is I have had these wines in the past. So I have a leg up on Andy. I've had a different vintage of the Burgundy. I've had the vintage of the of the California. So I do have a leg up on him. So I just want to talk about like cursory, basic information to give Andy somewhat equal footing on me with Is me. Is this a competition? So, I didn't realize we were competing. It's not a competition. Valley. No, it's not a competition. <laughs> but I just want you to know so that you're not like, how would I guess this? So here's the deal. In Bottle Shock, it's about Chateau Montalena is the winery that the the movie is focused on. And they are, at this point, incredibly famous winery. And they're no longer the backwater farmers that they were in 1976. I understand that things change. But when Andy and I talked about what wines we wanted to taste, I wanted to honor kind of the heart of the Judgment of Paris, which is that blind tasting was called the Judgment of Paris. And I wanted to honor kind of what they were doing there. So I wanted to pick a wine that was a little bit off the beaten path. I didn't want to go super esoteric. Lioko is in a very well-respected beloved winery in Sonoma. But I think that Sonoma has a little bit more of the character that Napa had in the 70s. And so I just thought it was actually slightly more accurate, I guess, than choosing a Napa shard for our U.S. pick. And then Domaine Roland is the winery for the Burgundy. And they do use some oak. So that's the kind of the through line with these two wines is that both of these Chardonnays are aged in neutral French barrels. So they it's similar oak. If you're wondering, like, why the hell is she talking about that? I'm just trying to say that, like, I didn't put a wine that was aged in stainless steel up against a wine that was aged in oak. I picked wines that purposefully do taste pretty similar. So that's the point of this. So here we go. We're going to drink some wine. So in the movie, I want to be super upfront with people. I love Chardonnay, but it is not my go-to grape. And when I was watching Bottle Shock the other night to prepare for this, I just wanted a glass of Chardonnay. Mm. It's golden in color and they did all this stuff with the sunlight coming through and it just looked so beautiful. And I I just was so excited for this this moment right now. <laughs> I was so excited about it. I was like, well, we're going to drink really great Chard come podcast recording time. So here we are with two glasses of lightly golden goodness in front of us. So Okay. I are you drinking? I'm, I'm drinking. And I just have to say, this wine is so good. <laughs> I don't care what which which one it is. It's just like absolutely it, delicious. So I think people have this idea that all Chardonnay tastes like buttered popcorn. Good. And that is just, it's plainly not true. But I think that one thing that is beguiling about Chardonnay, in my personal opinion, is the mouthfeel, the way that it just lands on my palate. And I don't know. I know Andy hasn't eaten all day. Uh, and yeah. it's like, it's almost <laughs> it's, like food, you know, like it's, there's mm. so much to it. There's such a, there's such a weight to it. That's so lovely. Yeah. This is some elegant shard. I will say. You're welcome. So what? I do you notice oh a God. difference between them, Andy? I thought this would be easier. I thought I would be like, oh, that's for sure. California. And yeah. that's for sure. French, because a lot of California chard is pretty distinct. You don't have to always have a butter bomb, but usually they have a lot going on. They're pretty big, fruity things yeah. that have a lot or not even just, just big and then french chard has a much more elegant thing going on and both of these are so elegant they surprisingly smell quite similar i think i think they have a very similar aroma i feel like number two is slightly is brighter i guess i would say number two has a little bit more acidity than number one. Oh, i should also mention i know i told you i wasn't going to be too nerdy but I'm just, I just want Andy to have all the facts. 
they are the same vintage. So they're both 2018. So this was like really, honestly, like very close comparison. So in the judgment of Paris, they were just ranking the wines. They were trying to guess. So let's do, let's say this. What's your, which one do you prefer? Okay. I think I prefer number two. I loved number one and then I had number two and I was like, oh, this is some special. Yeah. A little, a little, yeah, less a brighter, a little more focused. We can, okay. and you can know, I think part of my wine journey has been just trusting whatever words you want to say. Yep. And so that's what, and that's what you taught me was like, just whatever it is, be just yourself. Say it. Trust just yourself. Just say it, right? I, I think I would want to drink number one more. Mm. Oh my, I don't know. There's a slight earthiness to it that I really like. On the palate, there's like a little creamy mushroom thing that I am digging. So do we want to wager a guess or do we want to just leave it there with our favorite? Okay, no, I can guess. But now, see, knowing how much you love French culture and things, I would. But I don't know. I really genuinely do not know. I don't know. I am going to let you go first, though. No, and I'm okay with being wrong, too. So I'm going with what I had thought before you said what your favorite was. Yeah. Which was number two as French and the one I like and number one as California and the one you like but I can see now I don't know I could be totally wrong wrong. Andy I can totally be wrong so I am going to say that one is French and two is American and the reason that I'm going to wager I'm going to I'm going to say this I've had enough of Lyoko's wines that they are awesome they're acid heads and they go for it now I could totally 100% be wrong but that's what is leading me down this path so what I'm going to do now is I'm going to get my husband and we're going to find out the answer. Keep recording. Okay. I think there's a nicer fruitiness to number. I guess the fruit is very clear and present. And I enjoy that with number two. As Bali was saying, number one has the earthiness that is cool. But if I, I could drink for just gallons of number, which I'll be honest is what I'm going for most of the time that I'm trying to buy a wine is can I drink? glass after glass because you never know who is going to be drinking with you and if they want more than a glass or if you just have one of those days where you want the whole bottle at the end of the night i think we might be getting our decision now and um, molly looks smitten because <laughs> i was right <laughs> of course of course oh, yeah bravo. yeah the french is number one and it i you know i i picked it as my fave, but I picked it as my fave, like legit, not because I thought it was the French one. I just want everyone to know that. I feel like the oak comes through more on the French. Maybe I'm totally wrong, but there's no, it's I completely balanced. agree with you. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think that there is a surprising amount of oak on mm-hmm. the Frenchie that I enjoy. So let's decant bottle shock. <laughs> in white terms, decanting is the process where you pour a bottle of wine into a different vessel. And that the act of, of pouring that out uh, into something else aerates the wine. And for reds, it helps the tannins soften and it introduces oxygen to the wine. And it kind of allows the wines to become more cohesive. And so we are taken with that term because this is the segment where we're going to kind of dive into our subject a bit and spend some time with it. Let it breathe a little bit, right? So let's talk about bottle shock. Um, if you haven't, 
if you haven't seen it, I do recommend it. I think it's a super fun movie. And I think that you can either pause this podcast right now and go watch it. That's probably not going to happen. Or you can just watch it some other time <laughs> and, you know, remember this conversation. Or it may probably that you've seen it. I put a uh, call out on social media for wine movie recommendations. And this was by far the winner in terms of people uh, recommending it. So let's give the people a synopsis, Andy. Okay. What is Bottle Shock about? Good question. Bottle Shock is based on a true story during America's Bicentennial, 1976. American wine is still thought of as dirt, and the mm -hmm. French winemakers are the royalty of wine world, essentially with no no peers, as it as it were. And this character played by Alan Rickman, who is a wine merchant slash owner of something called the Academy of Wine in Paris, is disgruntled with his business and hangs out with an American in his shop a lot, and they come up with this idea to have a wine tasting with some of the greatest French wines with Californian wine, somewhat in line with celebrating America's Bicentennial. And so Alan Rickman's character has to go to Napa Valley, and there's a lot of fancy, upright Britishness juxtaposed <laughs> against the gritty American farmer in Napa. <laughs> and hippie, right? Like, it's, it's the 70s, yes. but there's definitely this uh, surfer dude hippie vibe. Chris Pine plays Bo Barrett, the son of the winery owner. And he's kind of a ne'er-do-well, kind of, you know, bandying <laughs> about, hanging out. His best friend is Gustavo. And Gustavo's making wine on the side. And he's spending time with an older Latinx person. And that guy, the older guy, calls Bo Barrett out for his privilege. And it's a beautiful freaking moment that I am like, I, these moments don't happen in real life enough, let alone in a movie, let alone in 2008. And he said, if I'd been born with your privilege, I wouldn't have squandered it. I was like, everything. Moment. I was right? afraid there was going to be some sort of comeback. And I was like, oh, no, this is so not my jam. But that moment where they call out, like, you're a privileged kid and Chris Pine doesn't, you know, say anything snarky back. I was like, OK, good. There is an awareness here because sometimes 2008 feels like it is the 70s. And this time I was like, OK, there is some awareness of what's going on. So Alan Rickman comes to California and is impressed with the wines that he finds there. And some hijinks ensue, let's just say that. And then he brings them back to France and he's lined up a pretty notable panel of judges who taste the wines blind. And so they are tasting Chardonnay and Cabernet Sauvignon. So they're tasting Chardon Cap from Napa and then Burgundy for the whites and Bordeaux for the reds. And of course, they all assume that the French wines are all just going to win. And so there's one wine writer there. Um, his name is George Tabor. It's kind of amazing that he was like the lone person, the lone journalist at this event. And they taste the wines blind, as you can guess, because they made a whole movie about it. The Americans win. Girl. Okay, so I wanted to properly quote a quote that they use in the movie. Mm -hmm. Because some of this, it's, it's an interesting film that's clearly giving into the pressures of Hollywood and creating a Hollywood film. And also trying to balance that with, no, there is some real love of wine trying to be displayed here. And they quote, 
there's these scenes of just kind of like showing the beautiful landscapes of Napa and quoting other people. And this one quote that is, wine is sunlight held together by water. And that is apparently attributed to Galileo Galilee, which is how cool is that? <laughs> and I was like, oh, yes. So like, what a beautiful way to explain what wine is. And for all the excess the, the movie does outside of wine, it does give some great moments that try to showcase how magical wine can be. That it's like there is this whole arc of the wine turning brown in the bottle and that meaning it can't be sold and it's horrible, but really it's because the wine is too perfect. And that's something that the, the enzymes in the wine would normally be killed by a slight bit of oxygen because they made it so perfectly and there was no oxygen shown to the wine, it turned brown for a few days. So cool, nerdy stuff that makes you a kind of like marvel at the winemaking process. I really enjoy those moments and very accessible in that sense. Yeah, I agree. And I think there were there are a couple other moments where Alan Rickman's character, so he's playing a, a real person named Steven Spurrier, who really mm -hmm. did organize this tasting. And he's comes across as a snob, right? He's British. He's a British expat living in Paris. Like, I don't think you get snottier than that. I think that's <laughs> kind of like the height of snobby. And I, I wish I had written it down, but I don't know which character says it. I, I think it might be Bill Pullman's character who is playing the owner of Chateau Montalena. But he says that being a snob limits you. And I think that if I'm not one to paint quotes on walls, that's just not my aesthetic. But I think that if I were going to paint a wine quote on the wall at my shop, that would be the one. I think one of the key things that I noted watching this was, yeah, Alan Rickman as the snob. That snobbiness is rooted in this history of wine and winemakers and says that wine has to be made by dynasties. Like there is something special about the great makers because they are these dynasties that go back generations in making wine. And I think that's really cool. And a lot of the French world is like that when you start to realize how historic and special those wines are. And I think it brings up the point of wine that is how much of a story it is. A lot of wine selling, I think it is so much about having a story to your wine that makes it special and I think does add to the experience. But great wine can come from anywhere. As they joke, it's like, oh, South America could be selling wine and now, you know, obviously selling a ton. And then, and it's exciting to think like, will India and China, as mentioned in the movie, be the places that are creating wines that we're all going to be talking about in a decade that don't have the stories of France, but are producing good juice. And maybe I'm really going on a tangent here, but no, it I think it's a lot of good things. It does. You know, early in the movie, they talk about comparing great wine to great art. And Alan Rickman's character has this whole mm. little um, moment in his wine shop where he's kind of drawing all of these corollaries between great artists and then saying like, Opryon is the same kind of thing, right? Like this great wine is the same kind of thing as that. And I do think that there's something there. I think that there is like a nugget of very, of truth there that in the same way that great art doesn't have to be appreciated in I don't know what I want to say, like overly sophisticated way, right? You can just appreciate it. You can just say like, it's pretty, right? In the same mm -hmm. way with wine, like you can just say like, yeah, it tastes good. And yeah. if you want to learn all the words and the right, you know, I don't want to say right, but like the professional vocabulary for it, you can, but also you can just have a glass of wine on a Tuesday night and be happy. 
yeah. great. And you can just know that like you like to celebrate with X bottle because it makes you feel good. So yeah. I do think that the movie gets at that with them all drinking out of juice glasses. It For me, it actually, it was, a, it was like a thing. Like I noticed it because I thought they just actually care about the wine. None of the people in the movie, it drove me freaking crazy. None of them know how to taste wine. I don't know. <laughs> like, I don't know who trained them. So in real life, uh, real, I want to back up or I want to pause and just say that like the winemaker for Chateau Mondelina's winning wine in 1976 is a man named Mike Gergich. He was the head winemaker at Chateau Mondelina. He went on to leave Mondelina and open his own winery, Gergich Hills. He didn't want to be part of the movie. So they they changed the storyline a bit and they he was originally written into the movie. Um, I think that's a piece missing. You know, there are a lot of liberties taken with the truth. Let's just mm -hmm. say that. There's a really great YouTube video of the real life Bo Barrett, who in the movie is played by Chris Pine. He does like a Q&A of the questions of did this really happen? Did this not really happen? And he's great. He's so charming. And you can just tell that he's the CEO of a very successful winery. You're like, yep, you were a hippie. You are not a hippie anymore, sir. But he's he is super honest about it, right? He's very honest about the fact that like this isn't a documentary. That's not what we're doing here. We're telling a story based on things that did actually happen. I, I think if this movie were made today, we would see it done differently. I think at the time there was, again, it's like trying to be a Hollywood film that ends with this tasting and a happy surprise for Americans that you kind of expect going into it, right? But for instance, they don't show the red tasting. They only show the tasting of the Chardonnays. Yeah, and I couldn't find anything about that. So Stag's Leap was the winner for the red for the cab. So they, the U.S. won for both white and red in the Judgment of Paris. And then they redid it in 2006. They actually opened not, I don't think it was exactly those same vintages, but they opened the, those same wines and did it again. Uh -huh. And the U.S. still won, which is just like, oh, no. OK, so like legit, you just like these wines more, which I think is awesome. But Stag's Leap isn't mentioned. Height Cellars isn't mentioned. Ridge is mentioned kind of mm -hmm. in passing where they talk about Ridge wine, but and they don't talk about the French wines at all. And like no. that's a moment where I'm like, I don't know. Did you not get permission? Did the French wineries not want to be part of this? You know, so who know, who knows? The Napa that we see in Bottle Shock is charming as F, you know, it's so charming. Mm -hmm. I want to go there. That place mm -hmm. looks great. That place just doesn't exist anymore. If you have a lot of barriers up, if you have, you know, really expensive tasting room visits, if I feel this pressure to join your wine club just because I came in, that kind of stuff is like just an immediate turnoff for me. I always recommend that people go try, try Sonoma, try Paso Robles in the Central Coast as well. And then you can decide, like maybe Napa really genuinely is the place you love, but yeah, you're not just going to roll up and leave a $10 bill, you know, and like there's that whole there's a whole conversation in the movie about like Alan Rickman wanting to pay for the wine yeah. for the tastings. Right. And they all just like think this is like so funny. And I made a note like I was like, yeah, but how much does it cost to go to Chetta Montalena now? Would they let what? you they would never let you in for free. And I know they have to make money and I understand and I know how business works. So please don't at me about that. I am a business owner, but. That's my little moment there. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's a good. I mean, it is a huge point, though, of like, yeah, wine tastings as things that should be free or very low cost because it is about experiencing a winery's slate of wines. And so, you know what you want versus I'm trying to I'm trying to find how much it does cost to go to Chateau yeah. Montalena. Well, and I like, you know, as somebody who owns a wine bar, I know that like you don't want to say wine free wine tasting, right? Because then that just means people show up 
uh, expecting all the all the things for free, right? We have a wine shop of 300 wines and people are like, can I just open any bottle? And you're like, well, no, that's not how it works. Yeah. So there is a business element to it. But I, I it's more like watching that movie and trying to remember the juxtaposition of where they were then and where they are now. I think it's really one of the interesting points. Yeah, it's apparently $45 to $55 starting for a taste of Magdalena. Let's quickly yeah. summarize what all this movie is trying to do. It is trying to, yeah, be a redemption story a for the Chris Pine character, this young kid that is a hippie and then gets his act together to, you know, be the face of the winery in an uber successful manner. So this um, movie is a pro-capitalist movie is what you're saying. <laughs> Yes, what I'm yes. hearing from you, Andy. <laughs> yes, it has the <laughs> romance of the woman. Yes, sleeping with both of the char- the ma- the male characters. Pine ostensibly. Yes, yes. In Which I was end. like, wait, how did that happen? Some uh, uh, there's that the subplot of Gustavo sort of winning as the like immigrant child of immigrants that works his way up to be a brilliant winemaker. There's what else? there's is there an Alan Rickman thread here i don't know that he sort of... becomes successful right he does this and he gets himself on the map yeah yeah i think there's so a little they don't show that they don't they show don't, his success i guess there's a little you're right they don't show his success and i guess there is a little like insider baseball on this right that like i know that george Tabor goes on to write many books about wine and i know that steven spurrier goes on to have a successful career and all that stuff but I don't know that the average person necessarily knows that. Good or point. Care. I mean, I don't know how much people care, right? I don't think they necessarily... It, this movie is then effectively the origin story of Napa wine, right? Where it's now it yeah. is a Becca of sorts. And this is at least what's your appetite. Yeah. For if you want to learn more, here's Chateau Lantaleta is a good place to start. And then there's Ridge and a couple other names I think come up. Yeah. Right. And they like they have this on the Napa website. They actually talk about bottle shock and how much is accurate in comparison to what happened in real life. So it's clearly good for tourism. <laughs> clearly, they clearly know why people are coming to see them. That's all we have to say about bottle shock. Send us your thoughts. I'm going to pull and piggyback, borrow, steal from another great podcast, NPR Pop Culture Happy Hour, and ask you, Molly, about what's making you happy this week, this month, this season. So much makes me happy about this season. My birthday is in three days and Andy and I are both Libras. And so there is definitely a happiness that comes when fall arrives. But I will say that in addition to my love of sweaters and scarves, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of going to bring us down, but I'll bring us right back up, I promise. I have an almost 10 year old and it has been a hell of a year and a half. And I think that Arguably for us, at least in my family, 2021 has actually been harder than 2020. I think 2020 was a get inside, close the door, get through, keep your head down and get through. And 2021, because of the business that we're in, we were able to get vaccinated relatively early on. So, uh, you know, earlier this week, Pfizer announced that they are ready to move ahead with vaccinating children. And I don't have any notion that life is just going to look like it did in 2019. And frankly, I don't want it to look like it looked in 2019. 2019 was overscheduled too much, really, honestly. But what's making me happy this week is knowing that my kid might not get hospitalized. So we're round in the corner on it. That's my thing. That's great. I have nothing so 
elaborate <laughs> or or high stakes. Um, I'm childless. And... <laughs> That's why I love him. Wait, I just need to say that like this is what I need in my life because I can't just spend my time with other people who also have young children because we just all stare at each other like, what the F are we doing? So uh, I need people like you, Andy. So what's making you happy right now? Okay, I'm going to have to go with the season because fall is my favorite time of year. Yes, my birthday is in a couple of weeks in October, but I was on a walk last night and I was like, wow, I just love colder weather. It's not only the 50s and this weather just makes me so happy and excited in a way that I can't fully explain. And I need to figure out, but the, the leaves are going to change soon. You can just like walk outside in a sweater and pants. I drank tea for the first time in a while yesterday because I was like, oh, yeah, you can drink tea in the afternoon as a beverage that isn't going to make you too hot because you're not sweating from the heat. So I just love fall. And this weather makes me really happy. And I love the holidays. And so it's like the lead up through Halloween and then Thanksgiving and then Christmas, what a time to be alive. <laughs> it's beautiful. And this wine, this wine makes me happy. Drinking and like, yeah, colder, like fall weather and wine is a great combination. It's true. I feel like I take it more seriously now. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. just like refreshing beverages. And now I'm like, oh, I can think about my job again. Yeah. And so that's, that's, <laughs> this is done now. We're done. <laughs> that's the end and of this We're episode. done. Over, over. Now, a podcast like this wouldn't be complete without some listener interaction. At least that's how I feel, especially as a lifelong fan of the show, Frasier. You know, talk radio and all these audio podcasts really, I think, benefit from hearing from our listeners. And that's you. Please send us your questions, your comments. We'd love to feature your voice on this podcast as we figure out just what it is we're doing. But I'm positive whatever it is you have to say will be essential to the success and joy that we have on this show. So please find us at TableWineMadison.com. You'll see places to reach us there through Instagram, Facebook, email us. Again, that's TableWineMadison.com. On the website, you will find a page just for the podcast if you want to submit. The Table Wine Podcast is hosted, produced, and edited by myself and Molly Moran. And our music is from Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to Craig Ely, who I will describe as an audio wizard. He is amazing, and if you're looking for help with your audio project, check out his website, fieldnoise.com. That's fieldnoise.com. Thanks for listening. Hope you tune in again soon.